A very good evening, everybody, and welcome to Kaizen Central, brought to you, as always, by Manufacturing TV. Um, it's a, a warm summer's night, and I'm very grateful to you for, uh, for, for taking time out to join us in this conversation. I've been looking forward to this session with enormous anticipation. Um, you and Lloyd Baker recommended I get hold of a book called Tragedy and Challenge, written by Tom Brown, who's our guest tonight. And I have to say it was one of the most extraordinary uh, reads in a long term. I suspect not because it told me anything new in principle, um, but it did tell me that uh, you know, put an awful lot of personal experiences and flesh on the bones of the argument that we have all come to understand as being the political moves, the moves in the city of London that have somehow over the last few decades, since perhaps the 70s, contributed not only towards a, a decline in British engineering and manufacturing, but has also contributed to a sense of alienation among the general population about what engineering and manufacturing actually do and what they contribute to uh, our economy. Um, now, the, the, the goal of this session is not necessarily to go over old um, old stories and, 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 and old battles, um, because what we're all about, as you know, is about looking at ways in which we can improve the, the, the visibility of manufacturing in government and in the general population. And that's very much our mission, and that's what we do. But um, it, 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 there is one quote in the book um, that demonstrates that attitudes to manufacturing that have been changing over the years um, are not necessarily um, you know, the, 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 the preserve of one particular political party, although um, I'll let Tom speak to this himself in a minute. Um, you know, the, the Thatcher years uh, really were the, the, the sort of sea change, but the fact that other political parties got infected is a hard word, but I'll use it anyway. Um, Tom was talking to Ed Balls, who was uh, Chief uh, Advisor, First Secretary of the Treasury or something like that at the time during the Labour government, and uh, asking him, he asked Ed Balls for his view on the decline of engineering and manufacturing. And uh, Ed Balls said, you might as well mourn for the dinosaurs. Um, and I, Tom, I suspect you were more than taken aback uh, to hear that from Mr. Balls uh, at the time you were having that conversation. Well, I find that kind of thing very demotivating when he, he made that comment. Um, I think probably people who were more cussed and thicker skinned than me were just getting on with running their businesses and not meeting people like that and probably weren't so influenced. But I think it was very demotivating. It put a lot of young people off um, joining manufacturing careers. Um, I think the... Um, as you're saying, attitudes have changed. And nowadays, politicians would all pay lip service to the importance of manufacturing, but actually most of them don't understand where to begin in actually creating an environment that helps manufacturing. Yes, I mean, I, I think the, the, the key thing that I took from your book, particularly uh, what you were saying around um, the, the, the what Margaret Thatcher and, as I say, that sort of that sharp push on the tiller that moved our economy and our society in different in a different direction. The, the positive note I took from that was that if politics can shape society and industries place in it, <clears throat> pardon me, in one direction, then it should be able to push it in a different direction as well, and. Uh, that, of course, is what we, we, we all hope for. That's what we're all fighting for, if you like. I'm wondering if you share that optimism. Um, I, I, I certainly share the logic. And if you look at countries like, say, Germany over the last um, 70 years, look at China more recently, then their governments have certainly done that. Um, I don't actually have much optimism that the UK government is about to go in that direction, although logically, as you say, it could. Mm. 
Tom, I've, I've, I've sort of rather jumped straight into the conversation. I, I suspect it would be helpful for those members who haven't had a chance to read the book. If you could just give us a, you know, a, a, a quick thumbnail portrait of your time in engineering and manufacturing. Um, a thumbnail is a, a bit much to ask because it's a very comprehensive career. But if you wouldn't mind just offering just a little bit of an insight. My, well, I, I joined GKN as a graduate trainee. Um, um, the first management job was um, as a shift manager in Scotland in a very tough drop forge. Uh, two weeks days, two weeks nights, 750 men and three nurses to um, mop up the, the wounded. Um, I got sponsorship from GKN to go off to IMD Business School in Lausanne, We're very generous with GKN. Had a wonderful year there doing an MBA. And not long after that, I was really lucky to get offered the chance to be managing director of a GKN outfit in South Tyrol. And actually, that South Tyrol these days is part of Italy legally, um, but culturally, it's still part of Austria. It was part of Austria until the Treaty of Versailles. Um, and uh, that was a, a wonderful experience. It taught me how the Germans run engineering companies. I, I'd seen in Scotland how badly companies uh, like that one was run, and I could now see a, a much better way of running up. I came back to the UK, um, had a, a brief spell consulting with McKinsey, uh, which was very interesting, and I learned a lot, but consulting really wasn't my style of things. Um, went back to GKN and ran Vanderbilt, the engine-bearing company for them, but I found GKN terribly frustrating. It was dominated by accountants, um, and so I, I, I was very lucky to be headhunted to go and run an engineering group called B. Elliott and became chief exec of that, um, only to find that the city simply wasn't interested in the sort of German long-term approach that I wanted to develop. They wanted takeover deals and um, big dividends and, and, and quick paybacks. Um, I moved on from that to Fenner, a um, company that a number of you probably know, uh, FTSE 250 business, which was unfortunately taken over by Michelin um, a couple of years ago. Um, and then from there to um, a company called United Industries, and again, I just I had an endless trouble with city shareholders that they didn't want the sort of approach that I, I was trying to do. So I ended up moving up from that into a non-executive career and was involved in a, a wide range of different companies. I was in total on the board of seven um, stock market quoted companies. Um, I did some private equity ones, one family business, a government quango, um, really quite a wide range of things. And, and it gave me a, a lot of insights into what was going on and going wrong in the British manufacturing environment. Well, Tom, and, and by the way, everybody, as per always, please just use the raise hand thing or stick your hand up if uh, you want to make a contribution or ask a question of Tom. But I, I just want to dig a little deeper into your approach as a as a human being, Tom, to to business and to your career in engineering. Um, you talked about um, the, the battlefield that was that uh, drop forge in Scotland in the 70s and uh, how awful it was. And they had to have nurses because health and safety was clearly not at a premium. Um, you use the word caring a great deal in your book when it comes to talking about colleagues and, and people who work for you. Um, you talk about teams, you talk about openness, you talk about honesty. Uh, these are values clearly that you, you regard very highly. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, it's interesting that you you, you um, highlight them like that. Yes, absolutely. I, I've always seen business just not just as an opportunity to make money for oneself, but to do a much wider social good. Um, and one of the things I greatly regret over the time I've been working is it's changed so much in the UK. It used to be a situation where people had a wide regard to stakeholders of, of all kinds, em employees, local communities, and so on, as well as shareholders. And I think one of the problems is that certainly for quoted companies, fiduciary duty has come to be interpreted as simply meaning maximum returns to shareholders as quickly as possible, regardless of, of, of what that does to um, other stakeholders. And of course, private equity um, has absolutely no degree of caring or, or um, anything like that at all. If I may, I think that's the that's very much a, a, a thing that happened. I think it was 1970. Was it Milton Friedman wrote that article in New York Magazine um, saying that uh, companies that didn't look after shareholders were 
in effect, as you say, they were um, abrogating their fiduciary duty. And that, that gave, that sort of pulled the trigger on, on, on a race to short-termism, uh, quarterly returns, uh, stock price pumping. And that was America, but it came over here, particularly after 1986. Um, and Mr. Friedman um, uh, has a lot to answer for. Um, John Hardwick, uh, you've raised your hand. Yeah, thanks, Nick. And uh, thanks, Tom, for, for being here this evening. So it's very interesting to hear your perspective on things. I suppose the question that immediately triggered in my mind, and it shows my ignorance about the way the capital markets work outside of the UK, but I'd be interested in your insights as to why it's not such an issue in Germany. You know, how How is the capital structure in Germany different to that in the UK that means they don't suffer this uh, short-termism that we see in, in the capital markets in the UK? That's a very interesting question. I mean, f first of all, um, relative to the size of the economy, far fewer German companies are stock market quoted. Um, the, the German Dynamo has been the middle stand of, of um, unquoted uh, family-owned businesses um, who simply don't have these pressures and problems that the, the family can do what they want. They finance the business out of retained earnings. They don't have outside shareholders. They're their own masters. Um, the German quoted sector is really quite small. Uh, if you look at the total value of the German stock market, it's a lot less than the UK, although the German um, economy is a lot bigger. Now, I think in many ways, they're, they're in a more old-fashioned place. And the companies like Siemens, which is an excellent uh, German engineering group, I think you'd find simply doesn't suffer from the sort of pressures that, um, say, a GKN did, which led to GKN's takeover by Melrose. Um, if you went back to, I don't know, the 1960s, 1970s, GKN wouldn't have suffered like that. But GKN would have been treated with respect <coughs> by analysts rather than seen as a, as a, um, a football to kick around. And I think the, the Germans, in many ways, are just at a, a, a more old-fashioned place like that. I don't think there's actually anything in terms of legislation or structure that keeps it that way. It's much more a matter of attitude and, 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 and social beliefs. If I can pick up on that quickly, Tom, just to there is the point you, you make in the book, which is that British historically have been poor at business um, and and yet obviously very good um, at financial trading and, and, and so on. Is that at the root of it, do you think? The Germans have always been better at business and taken far less note of things like financial trading. Um, I, I think the Germans have been, um, um, well, certainly in, during the, uh, the last um, 50, 70 years, they have been a, a lot better at, at manufacturing than we have. Um, I'm not sure they've been better at retailing. Um, banking, I think potentially they've been a lot worse than, than, than we have. Um, so I think it differs a, 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 a lot by sector. Um, I think one of the big problems comes back to the um, in, inherent class structure in the UK and that we've tended to regard manufacturing as a, um, a demeaning sort of job. Um, that the, the, the typical uh, um, the, the, the British hierarchy says that the so-called professions like law and medicine and that kind of thing, academia, are the prestige places to go. Um, if you're not going to go into that kind of thing, then then you should do something like accountancy or, or, or that type of, of clean-handed thing. Um, and that manufacturing is way down at the bottom of, of, of the um, status order. And even within manufacturing, the, the thing that people um, shun away from is, is the manufacturing process itself. They'd rather be a salesperson in, in manufacturing company or something. Uh, so that actually the, the business of manufacturing is often or historically has often been run uh, by people who aren't particularly able or well qualified, whereas in Germany it's very different from that. John Hardwick, I'm sorry, Ewan, before I come back to you. John, I think I cut across you. Were, were you wanting to answer, ask a follow-up, or what was I...? No, uh... no I was just, just thanking Tom for his, uh, his answer. No, that's fine. Super, thank you. Ewan Lloyd-Baker, good evening. Yes, good evening, and um, hello there, Tom. Um, Tom, I'm just interested to, to understand the, sort of the motivation behind the book. Was it, was it something that you wrote for sort of almost for cathartic purposes? Um, or were you hoping that it would, you know, maybe a snowball that would start a uh, sort of some momentum in order to actually drive some change 
maybe there are two questions in there, you know, and, and if having published the book, you know, what was the response and, and has, has it sort of, has it made any difference as such? Has, has people been sort of, you know, ringing you or contacting you on the back of it from either a political perspective or an economic perspective or even a financial perspective and saying, we love what, you know, we, we, so, we, we wholeheartedly agree with it. And, and, and the content of it, let's say, who weren't in the manufacturing sector, and actually what a great blueprint that we ought to try and incorporate into a strategy going forward. So, sorry, two questions. What One, the motivation for writing yeah. it, and then yeah. secondly, having written it, sort of, uh, whether you've seen any sort of positive outcome. Okay, very interesting. Um, well, f- first of all, the motivation, it was uh, it was both the things you mentioned. Uh, I felt a scream b- building up inside me that I just wanted to have the chance to say what I really believed was right, because I'd sat through so many board meetings where I felt that you couldn't uh, say what I believed was right, um, particularly regarding things like fiduciary duty and, and, and that kind of, of, of stuff. Uh, but also, I did hope that it was going to make some change and that there would be some impact from it. Um, in terms of a response, um, well, <laughs> very varied is the answer. If, if you look at um, people who are involved in manufacturing, um, it's tended to resonate very strongly. Um, I've had some wonderful letters from people who've, uh, I mean, people I've never met, don't have a clue who they are, but they've written through my publishers to me, letters about it and so on. Um, if you look on Amazon, you look at the reviews which are there. A lot of them are posted by people who are obviously working in real jobs in manufacturing and heartfelt um, comments. And I'm, I'm, I'm very, very gratified by that. If you look at the um, political environment, however, which is really the government environment is, is where we most need to initiate change, in my view, um, it's very different. I sent the book to about 40 MPs of, of different parties. Um, there wasn't a single conservative who took any interest in it at all. Um, three Labour politicians took some interest. Rachel Reeves, who is the now the um, Shadow Chancellor, um, I met her a couple of times, um, and um, um, she took a bit of interest in the book, but I don't think she ever seriously took it on board. Um, I would have loved to have been able to help her. She was chair at the time of the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Committee. Um, and you know, her background was as a Bank of England economist. She had no experience in any of those fields, um, but she wasn't interested in playing that game. Um, Hilary Benn was another one. Uh, had a very good um, letter from him, but again, he didn't want to take it further. Uh, Jack Dromey, I, I don't know if any of you know him, the MP for Erdington in Birmingham, um, married to Harriet Harman, who's rather better known than he is, uh, but he was Shadow Work and Pension Secretary at the time. And we actually worked on a, a joint article about the problems of the influence hedge funds have in takeovers. Um, but we couldn't find anybody to publish it, despite the um, Labour Party's um, press office pull. Uh, so the only party that really showed much interest was the Lib Dems. And I got invited to join the Economic Policy Committee, uh, chaired by Vince Cable at the time. Um, and that did some good work, I think, and, and produced a, a document which um, contained a number of the recommendations in my book. And then, <laughs> blow me, but when they came to the last election, the manifesto basically didn't contain any of that stuff. And Joe Swinson conducted the most uh, uh, unsuccessful campaign, which more or less saw the Lib Dems wiped out. Um, and that was the end of that initiative. So the, so the answer is it's, it's resonate, resonated strongly with people like, I guess, the, the guys on the call tonight. Um, but unfortunately, not where it really matters in terms of, of Whitehall. You did get quite a bit of Can press I... coverage. Oh, sorry, you and we'd like to follow up. Yeah. Yeah, would you mind? Just, I'm, I'm interested because do you think now that because, let's say, <laughs> through a process of almost elimination, i.e. it was the Lib Dems that gave, gave, you, the, uh, gave you an audience, so to speak, do, do you think now one of the challenges is that, you, let's say, you, you and therefore the book has therefore been tainted by being linked to a political party? Or, or do you think, you know, I mean, the message in the book, I think, is, is irrelevant of, of your politics. It's, it's what we should be doing, full stop. <clears throat> Um, particularly, you know, the summary of the key recommendations, I think, are a fantastic sort of, you know, 10-point plan or however many points there are as, as going forward. But do you think one of the challenges now is that it, in order to try and, you know, because we're, you know, part of Kaizen Central is about and UK Manufacturing United is how do we create a voice and how do we build up momentum? Do you, do you think part of your challenge now is that you are politically tainted if, if, if you're 
don't mind me using that expression. Um, I, I don't think so, because um, I don't think anybody apart from people on this call and a few others know that I was actually involved in the Lib Dems because they never publicised that committee. Um, I've, I've not been a member of any political party in the, in, in the last 30, 40 years. Um, so, no, I, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I think if, if, if we had um, a, a different government, then potentially there's stuff there that people would pick up and run with. But I don't imagine the present Tory government is going to run with much of it, uh, particularly a, a lot of the city angles, which were, means clamping down on their rich donor pals. I was uh, going to raise, Tom, the fact that you did get some interesting press coverage from people like David Smith and the Sunday Times and so on hmm. at the time. And if anybody wants to look at those, do go to the Amazon page. Um, or in fact, it's the, sorry, it's, it, it, are the press cuttings on the Amazon page or on your publisher's page? It, the no, Troubadour? It's, it, it's, it's on a note I sent you separately. Right. Okay. I'm just wondering because you, you say uh, you, uh, my profession shares a certain amount of the, the blame uh, for a lot of what's happened in the sense that they become cheerleaders for the M&A game. Um, and very few, if any, journalists, none that I can think of, um, have actually, at a mainstream level, supported manufacturing. Um, and I guess that is rather indicative of, uh, of, of the way you know, media works, and, and the way people seem to parrot whatever is the, the, the flavor du jour um, and the, what the power structures dictate. Um, yeah, I, I was very pleased with the amount of press coverage that the book received, actually. Um, it, it, your, your comment is obviously inevitably true that something like a takeover battle is um, far more exciting for journalists and readers than some Mittelstand company reporting that its sales grew by 5% last year. Um, and it's taken on another 30 graduate engineers. Um, but but um, no, I, 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 don't, I don't feel the media has been um, a, a, a major problem in this, although it could have been better. I, th I think that the root cause of the problem has been poor government. Yeah. Of course, excessive I mean, governments. Yes. I, 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 just talking about uh, media, uh, Tom, when, when you and I were... Um, you know, younger, let's put it that way, uh, there was a very vital role that was played in all newsrooms, that of the industrial editor. Um, but what a misnomer that was. They, those correspondents had nothing to do with industry and everything to do with strife and trade unionism. And the moment that uh, the Conservatives won their battles with the trade unions, lo and behold, industrial editors uh, fell by the wayside and got transformed into business correspondents. And there we go. And when I, just a quick anecdote, when I was at LBC in the 80s, um, pre-86, pre-Big Bang, there was one um, in, there was one business reporter uh, in the newsroom. Uh, by by <clears throat> 1990, there was a whole cohort of them because city news became sexy. Industrial news became boring. Beverly Nielsen, good evening to you. Uh, you've got your hand raised. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, thank you, Tom. Uh, really fascinating to hear you talk about your past career. And as a West Midlander, I'm delighted to hear that you've spent quite a bit of time at GKN. And uh, um, I, like you, can say that I know Jack Dromey really well, and uh, he's been tremendously supportive, as indeed uh, do I know Vince Cable. So I was very sorry to hear uh, about the uh, outcome of Ball, your policy dialogue with the Lib Dems. Um, but um, th thanks for sort of your overview. Uh, but in your, and I'm afraid I haven't read your book yet, but um, in, in the um, summary, it talks about the sort of potential negative impact of Brexit. And I just wondered how you, if you'd like to say a few words about how you feel Brexit is going for manufacturing. 
at this right. point? That, that, that is, is obviously a crucial question. Um, I, I mean, first of all, we got a deal. Um, and at the time I was writing my book, it was quite possible there would have been no deal at all, which I think would have been pretty catastrophic for a lot of the companies I knew. Um, one of the companies I was chairing towards the end of my career had about 65% of its sales in the Eurozone. Um, and if we'd had tariffs, that would have been well, probably receivership for that company, I would think. Um, so, so at least we got that. Um, I think um, people, uh, other people on the call who are still working in industry will know better than I do exactly how it's working out in terms of things like the testing regimes and so on, the paperwork that's involved. Uh, but I, I feel the game isn't fully played yet. That um, One of my concerns is that potentially we're going to get divergence between UK um, legislation and European legislation on, on things like standards and so on, so that companies that want to export are going to have to meet um, two sets of, of criteria. That hasn't happened yet, but could happen easily over a period of time. And I guess another thing that concerns me is the Northern Ireland situation is clearly far from resolved. Um, now, that probably doesn't immediately affect too many engineering companies. It affects more food companies and, and people like that. Um, but if Johnson goes down the route he's talking about, about unilaterally ratting on the on the deal he signed, but effectively, um, then the EU is likely to um, react. And if they were to react in something like, let's say, threatening to put tariffs on cars, um, that would be draconian. Um, and I, I think at the moment that game just isn't played through. And I hope very much that we can avoid um, conflict. I hope both sides are sensible enough. I think the European side is. But I think you know, Johnson is showing every sign of, of trying to renege on a deal that he only signed a few months ago. And that's not going to work well. Um, can I come in just with a quick supplementary, if that's okay, Nick? Um, uh, yeah, just just to ask you uh, if you could give any insights and thoughts uh, in you know following on from your point there, and particularly any deviation in standards in terms of what that might mean for. Um, the next generation of cars, you know, we're looking at uh, electric vehicles, of course, and and uh, battery production and so forth. Um, do you see um, any advantages um, for the UK in its current position in terms of, you know, next generation production, particularly in automotive? Um, it, it, it's frankly very difficult to say. Nissan is committed to um, building a, a battery factory in the UK, which is a, which is a, a very positive step. Quite what bribery the government has given to get them to do that is is unclear. Um, Nissan, of, of course, is the UK's biggest car manufacturer. It's also one of the it's probably the weakest of the big international um, car groups. Um, and one battery factory in the UK doesn't make us a, a battery force. I believe that I read somewhere there's something like 30 battery factories in Europe already. Um, so, so you know, we're playing catch up rather than anything else. Um, and I, I think it, 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 there's still a, a long way to play on that. Um, I think there's a... Um, a positive aspect of Brexit that has, has come out is an encouragement to more UK sourcing, that one of the problems that the UK car manufacturers have to face is having a sufficiently high UK content. Um, that, that uh, t I mean, typically the Japanese have worked with a pretty small UK content, and in some cases they're going to have to increase that, and that could give the opportunity for some um, UK supply companies to, to expand. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, frankly, if you take a 20-year view on it, I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic. Well, there you go. That's uh, that, that's that's uh, rather rather sobering thought. I mean, uh, obviously there is a hope. I think that, uh, as you say, that that supply chains will adjust themselves. So we had um, Tony Haig of PP Control and Automation on a few weeks ago, and uh, we were discussing the make or buy debate, whether we make here or buy in, and how Brexit slash COVID have, uh, ha have altered that. So I think supply chains are very definitely changing. It's, it, it, perhaps this plays into a point you made when you were at BBI in the South Tyrol, um, Tom, um, an experience you had that really demonstrated to you that customer service um, for the long haul, uh, not just as a matter of making immediate profits, um, taught you a great deal in those earlier days of your career about the importance of sustained and sustainable long-term relationships. And this is, I, I think, I, I have no 
um, data on this, and please others jump in on, on this, uh, but I'm not certain necessarily we in the UK have got this lesson totally on board about customer service. Um, hard, hard to answer in, 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 in general. Um, I, I think one of the big problems in, in, in the UK is that um, people haven't people who are at the top of, of, of a lot of companies haven't um, worked their way up through various different functions. And I think if you if you take Germany, that one of the things they've been very good at is taking young graduate engineers and then rotating them through things, and they'll go into the accounts department on costing and so on. And, and you know, typically, a, a, an engineer understands a lot more about how the product is made and, and can put together a much more meaningful cost structure. It sounds terribly boring, but actually, it can give you great opportunities. But on the sales side that you're talking about, um, actually going out and meeting customers, um, seeing what the competition is doing at customers, it's an incredibly important um, uh, function. And, and the problem is that um, in the UK, too many of the people who do that sort of thing um, aren't in a position to, to um, uh, implement what they learn from those trips and, and if the boss is an accountant as they too often are then then they're not necessarily attuned to that kind of thing um, and I think if, if, if you had a situation where you had more senior people who had had frontline customer experience they would be much better at implementing that kind of thing and, and when I was later on when I was chairman of companies I always made sure that I was able to get out on the road for a few days each week with ordinary salespeople uh, meeting customers, um, and and it was a tremendously important part of of, of my um, intelligence about what was going on and what the company needed to be doing. Can you just tell the story that really drove that home to you about what happened uh, in, at BVI that really illustrated this point to you? I'm not quite sure which point you. Oh, it's, it's when it, when somebody um, uh, somebody needed an order in a hurry, and oh, uh, yeah. you yeah, yeah you. And we we had a German customer who um, suddenly needed a, a delivery in in a, in a very short space of time, and it was an unscheduled delivery. Um, and it was pretty obvious that one of their German manufacturers had let them down, probably with a tool breakage or problem like that. Um, and we pulled out all the stops. We got the delivery to them and, and, and stopped their production line from stopping. Um, and what I easily could have done would have been to demand a, um, a, a blackmail price for that delivery. That, and frankly, we had them over a barrel and I could have easily demanded um, a, a very high premium for a special delivery like that. Uh, but I said that we wouldn't even charge them the overtime costs and so on. We hope we just deliver on perfectly normal terms if they would allow us to quote for their main requirements in the future, which they never had in the past. Uh, and, and they did. And uh, we built it into a, a, a very big customer for us and a very good relationship. Yeah, I think that's that is <laughs> such a great story. Um, just to pick up on what you were saying about uh, the way some of the other businesses work, um, you, you mentioned quite often how uh, accountants running businesses tend to enjoy cost cutting as a way of achieving short-term profits and not building, um, not building for growth. I mean, didn't you say once that they somebody fired an entire sales force in order to save money? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a crazy thing to do, obviously. Um, I think one of the problems is cost cutting is one of the quickest ways of improving profit. So if you're under short-term um, profit pressure, um, if you want to set out to grow your business, you've got to do product development, you've got to, to do market development, it takes time, it costs money before it pays back. But cost cutting is, is, is very quick. I think another problem is in this country, we've too often um, done cost cutting by going around turning out the lights and um, not not um, recruiting and trying to make people write on both sides of the, the writing paper and not replace the pencils and this sort of stuff. Um, whereas the, I mean, a good company like Siemens, when I was talking to, to them, um, that they, they would say, right, we can see um, strategically, we've got to take 10% out of the cost of this product. How do we do it? And they look at the engineering of the product, they look at the manufacturing process, they decide they need new machine tools, robots, whatever it is. Um, they invest in those things and take 10% of the cost out in a, a long-term and positive way. Yeah, John Hardwick, did you have your hand up? Sorry, I couldn't work out whether you had. Yeah, I did, Dick. Um, I, I was actually just reflecting on something that Tom said a few minutes ago when he was talking about the experience in the Tyrrell. And he's already um, 
mentioned the cultural side of you know the class system in the UK. Unrelated to that, I'd be interested in whether there's something about the language that we use, because Tom referred to an engineer in Germany, and I believe that in Germany they have separate words for different types of engineers. And I always feel that it's a bit of a problem that in the UK, the guy who comes to fix your washing machine is an engineer, and the guy who is paid £250,000 a year for designing some huge um, mechanical or, or structural engineering is also an engineer. And is that part of the problem? Is it that we don't have the right language to describe what we're doing? I think that the actual language is 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 a, a symptom of, of of the way the status uh, that we hold these people at. Um, that yes, you're absolutely right. In in um, Germany, you, you uh, many many of the senior people would be a doctor of engineering, DN. Um, in Italy, they're ingegneri, um, and so they have a title. Um, in the UK, none at all. Um, and I'd comment in my book that the, if if you went to Oxford, the most senior um, degree you could get as an engineer is a doctor of philosophy. Uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't mention engineering at all. There's no no such thing. Um, but but yeah, I think it, it it comes back to the status in which we hold manufacturing, which unfortunately is way below um, the way where we hold um, lawyers or accountants and so on. Um. True. Ram Shankar, good evening to you. Good evening, everybody. Uh, right, so I've been listening to the conversation until now, and uh, John's comment about terminology, John Hardwick's comment about terminology, suddenly triggered me into action, for lack of a better phrase. This terminology that you spoke about, John, is actually something I've actually faced with the organization whose uh, label is behind your, fa- behind your image, the Manufacturers Alliance. The problem is this bad terminology is not just limited to what defines an engineer. It's also limited to what defines who a manufacturer is based on the alliance group. Everybody thinks unless you're making something, you're you're not a manufacturer. But what they fail to realize is the very definition of manufacturing has changed from making something or forging a piece of metal or casting a piece of metal to the entire product life cycle, right from the time you think about the product, how you design it, where the supply chain comes from, what happens to the product after it's used, whether you recommission it, decommission it, whatever you do. The entire ecosystem is manufacturing. And surprisingly enough, that group of people, the Manufacturers Alliance, either did not realize what it is or they simply did not want to talk to a consultant like Equitas Engineering because they thought we are out there to maybe take their money and not offering any value. It felt like it was the blind leading the blind. So we as industry, we as sector, we as manufacturers out to first come together and change how we define our sector and what we do for a living. Unless we do it internally, unless the change comes from within, no matter what government does, no matter what anyone else does, no matter what the Germans do, we're still going to be stuck in a rut, for lack of a better phrase. Apologies for the rather blunt Northern-style usage of language. Okay, I think, I think you maybe ought to have a sidebar conversation, Ram. <laughs> I, th- I think you're right that man- manufacturing is 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 very poorly defined, and um, part of it is is particularly changing technology. So that software is now a very significant part of a lot of of, of um, manufactured products. But writing software code wouldn't usually be regarded as a manufacturing job. Um, I, I think the, um, the 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 other thing is that if you look at the government statistics on manufacturing, the um, Office of National Statistics and so on, um, manufacturing is includes food manufacturing, food and drink. So that's the biggest single segment. Um, and, and of course, it's got a completely different set of, of criteria from engineering or chemicals or, or furniture or anything like that. And, and the, the issues that food manufacturing companies and, and, and drink manufacturing companies face are extremely different. And particularly in recession, they tend to be far more resilient. So that um, in, 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 a, in a recession, in a typical, I mean, real manufacturing companies like engineering tend to suffer a very hard time. Um, food and drink has hardly changed. Um, and, and so the consequence is it doesn't look as though the impact on manufacturing is as bad as it, it is. And I think when you look at the, the lobby groups like, say, Make UK, originally that was the Engineering Employers Federation, um, and it was strictly engineering. Then they, they wanted to broaden their appeal. 
Um, but I think it was a shame that they've embraced things like food and drink because I think their 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 um, their whole their whole business system is so completely different, and their constraints and objectives are so different. I think that's a really interesting point. They 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 also have uh, <clears throat> the, the 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 degree of automation of food and drink. Um, in some factories, I was, I'm told in the United States, you know, almost no people at all, nearly everything is actually automated. Um, and in the UK, I think there's an awful lot of uh, quite low skilled um, in the workforce. It's not the same, it doesn't have the same skills imperatives that uh, the engineering side of manufacturing, if you like. I thought it was rather telling that you used the phrase real manufacturing there, Tom. Um, uh, <laughs> I think that we, I think that uh, whatever conversation Ram and uh, and John Hardwick have, um, I think that probably needs to be expanded. I think that's uh, that's possibly a, a whole session in itself. What is manufacturing? Let's define it because uh, I'd love to hear some other views on that. Because uh, uh, Ram's definition to me, um, given as I I'm speaking as a you know, as a, a, a journalistic observer who's intimately involved in, in a lot of the uh, a lot of stories around manufacturing, but I'm not in it. I love what Ram said. I think that absolutely does resonate with me that that manufacturing can and should be um, something. I mean, I, I also look at the way that um, Paul Stead, um, our design colleague who uh, came on and presented about the importance of product design and commercialization. I would say that every bit as much part of the, the manufacturing cycle as somebody who's uh, um, installing some machinery and, uh, and uh, um, you know, casting metal or whatever. Um, anybody else got any, any thoughts I see some people who I'd love to get some contributions from, um, but I don't like putting people on the spot, Stephen Barr. <laughs> I don't think he heard me. Um, anyway, <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> yeah, please, I'd love to hear your observations on what we've been hearing, Stephen, because you've been so intimately involved in manufacturing at so many levels throughout the last few years, um, and particularly with your the interface with government, having been at MAS. Yeah, I need to start with an apology that, that that intimacy is one step removed from actually being at the sharp end. So I'm always very jealous when I hear people like Tom, who've got real in-depth experience. And Tom, I think I, particularly what I'm picking up is your experience across large and small companies. Um, since I've been prompted by Nick, let me ask the question about government support. Government doesn't officially support larger companies. It says it's very keen to support smaller companies, but isn't really doing it at the moment. I just wonder what your views would be about a perfect future for government and industry cooperation in the future. What kind of support would businesses actually want from government? My, um, well, my own view is, 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 is that what we need from government is a... Um, an economy and, and a society which is conducive for running engineering and manufacturing businesses in in, in the broader context. I'm, I'm I, in my book. I've, I've steered way away from saying we should have subsidies or um, we we should have things like that. Um, I, I really don't think those are the keys. And I think when you look at com countries which have been very successful at manufacturing, they typically haven't done it that way. That uh, you, you might um, have some grants to get something going, but. Um, Basically, what you're looking for is is um, a, a, a terrain where where companies can get on and do their thing and operate effectively. And in the UK, I think one of the biggest problems to me is is, is the city, the short termism of the city, um, and, and 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 all that goes with that. The whole private equity scene and and, and so on. Um, the government needs to regulate that a lot more. Um, that, that's nothing specifically to do with engineering, but if they regulated that, then, you know, in my view, there's some easy wins there that they could be going for. That one of the um, things I would like to see is something like the French Florange law, where um, with the way it works in France, if, if you've owned shares for two years, you get double voting rights. So that uh, longer term shareholders have more influence on what happens than short term. 
you, you don't need to do it that way. You could do it. You could simply say that for the first six months you own shares, you don't have any voting rights at all. That would completely stop the games that hedge funds play. Another thing you could do um, is is completely remove the tax deductibility of interest charges. Um, that would screw the private equity companies who are, are, are exploiting pseudo debt as a, a, a way of taking money out of companies without paying corporation taxes. Um, so, that, so, so there's some 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 things they could um, be be doing there very 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 quickly and easily to rein in the city. Um, education is obviously a, one of the main things that a government is responsible for, and I think we have a very big problem um, in in terms of. Um, training people for real jobs. Um, the, far too much of, 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 of what's happening is people are leaving universities with degrees in media studies or something like that, and then finding there's, there, there, there are no jobs for them. Meanwhile, if you, you look at a lot of engineering companies, they find it very difficult to recruit the skills they need. Um, it, it, it seems extraordinary when you, you think that um, engineering has run down so much, but actually getting the skilled people you, you need is terribly difficult. And in Germany, Switzerland, about 40% of young people do apprenticeships, not, not all in manufacturing, maybe in retailing or, or other things. Um, but the apprenticeship in, um, arrangements in this country have been lamentable. And the government uh, changes a few years ago to introduce the <clears throat> apprentice training levy have been a disaster. So the, the, the education is something the government needs to be doing a lot about. Um, and, the, and then energy policy is something which is, I think, tremendously important at the moment. The government's been very assertive in setting out goals that we're going to be carbon neutral by, I forget what the latest date is, but there's absolutely no roadmap of how the hell we're going to get there. Um, if, if we're going to be doing things like switching from gas-fired boilers in, in domestic homes to hydrogen power or to heat pumps, um, what's it going to be? Who's going to build those? Where are we going to build them? We, we don't have an industry that does it. Who's going to produce the hydrogen. Um, the, the, there's an awful lot of stuff there. And, and, and also, of course, very importantly, who's going to pay for all that? And I think the, the, the whole question of energy policy is crucial, but partly for the whole, obviously, the issue of global warming. Um, but for manufacturing strategy, that, that we could be developing a whole lot of different activities here. And you know, Boris likes to go on about green jobs and all the rest of it, but we need a plan. It's, it's, you know, if you think of a company that says, okay, we're going to try to get um, 20 million pounds worth of exports to America by the end of next year, and then just doesn't do anything, uh, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. You've got to have a plan of how the hell you're going to get that. So what I'm looking for is government to, to take action in, in, in that those particular fields, the city, education and energy, I'd say, are some of the absolutely key ones. Um, I'm not looking for um, grants and support. Obviously, some of the things that's happening now, like um, the, the government seems very keen on innovation and they're talking about putting money into things like battery technology and artificial intelligence. Um, that could be a good thing. And if, if they have a consistent policy and stick with it, because we've had so many changes in, in policy before, we've had so many schemes which get started. Um, there was a scheme for uh, setting up more automotive supply chains, and then that all got stopped. There was the strategy that Greg Clark uh, launched three or four years ago, and now that's all been torn up. Um, and to get anywhere with, with batteries and artificial intelligence is going to take perseverance and a lot of cash. So the concept sounds good, but, but um, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking for handouts. I'm, I'm looking for a, a level playing field on which we can perform. Thank you. I, th I think your point Roy about uh, terrain is important. Yeah, yes, I agree. That's actually a very good word, terrain. I prefer it to ecosystem, which is the other favorite word du jour. <laughs> um, Roy Spencer, good evening to you. Sorry. Um, well, I speak as a lapsed and unfrocked metallurgist who spent time in a drop forge in the hellhole that's Wensbury, uh, but I can still hear. <laughs> and, um, but the point I wanted to, uh, to make is the government is capable of taking action when it really needs to. And I was interested to read the other day that the MOD have bought Sheffield Forge Masters. Now, the reason they bought it, of course, is that it's a very strategic industry. I think it's the only business that can make gun barrels in this country. That's one of the things that they do. Um, so they can move 
if they really see the need. But it, there doesn't seem any consistency there. And the um, factory in Wales, a uh, chip manufacturer, you know, it's all a bit too late when they actually come to action um, to say, well, maybe the Chinese shouldn't buy this. Maybe this isn't a good idea. Um, so I come back to what's been said about them not really having a strategy. And how can you force the government to have a strategy? Well, we could paint some scenarios about the future. And I've been looking at this quite a lot recently. And I've been looking at a thing. I've, I've got three vague scenarios, a pandemic world, warming world and conflict world. And if you look at those and the potential uh, that, that comes out of that, it all frequently comes back to supply chain. Uh, green economy, circular economy, it doesn't matter, and reshoring in some way, because the, it's no, we can't kid ourselves that these things aren't going to happen, because they are happening all the time, you know, um, and in my conflict strategy, uh, my concern is about China and Taiwan, as well as what's going on in the Middle East, you know, and the vulnerability of the Suez Canal, which was brought up recently. So it's about having strategy. And I agree with what you said, Tom, about they don't seem to have a strategy. But if we can publish these scenarios and put a lot more visibility around those, maybe somebody will get scared enough, actually, to pick up on a couple of the ideas. Because when they actually get scared, they do something. And, um, you know, I think we've just got to keep keep painting these pictures and telling these stories uh, until actually they get some attention. You make some very interesting points. That um, I, I'm, I'm just reading um, Peter Ricketts' book, um, The Hard Choices. I, I don't know if any of you have seen it. He was um, the British ambassador to France and a, 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 was head of the Security Council in, in the the, the um, um, UK defence arrangements and so on. Worked with government at the highest level, and he says that he reckons Harold Macmillan was the last British Prime Minister who had a strategic view. Um, and he says part of the problem is is the media and things have just got faster and faster. And, and nowadays with social media, it's got worse and worse. So suddenly they've got hold of the fact that Boris's flat decoration wasn't paid for by him and what have you. And suddenly everybody's flared up about that. So Boris spends the next three days worrying about his flat decoration and they, they don't think strategically. But I think the other point behind what you're saying is, is the, the whole question of, of lobbying. That the the fact is, I don't think the manufacturing industry has been very successful at lobbying the British government at all. Um, and I think if you look at the, how the hedge funds have done, the venture capital people have done, um, and now the, the the building people have done. Uh, the the, uh, the news tonight is that something like a quarter of recent Tory party donations have come from from um, building and uh, people. And um, you know, guess why they're getting their planning regulations relaxed and why they're not being forced to insulate houses to the standards which will be required in a few years' time. It's quite crazy we're building houses now, which are going to be obsolete very soon. Um, but we've just not been very um, successful. I, I, don't, I don't know how we do it better. I suspect part of the answer is money um, and that we don't have enough funds going into um, places like Make UK. Uh, but I just don't know how effective they are otherwise. And I, I've, I'm, I'm not an experienced lobbyist. America, obviously, is a place where there's a hell of a lot of lobbying goes on and money speaks for a lot there. Um, but I think as an industry, we've, we have not been very good at, at getting governments here. I think that's uh, without doubt absolutely true. Um, we've got about eight minutes left. Niraj. Um, good evening to you. Hi, good evening. Uh, and uh, Tom, thank you so much. It's such a privilege to hear, uh, you know, your views in this in this uh, conversation. Yeah. You, you mentioned about uh, factors like need to invest in skills or in uh, energy um, for the success of manufacturing. How about having the right technology in place? Uh, because... Uh, you know, with due respect, I'm also an engineer, but engineering is not just about nuts and bolts. It's also about things like IT, you know, having those systems and uh, with the automation increasingly coming into play as uh, Ram also, you know, touched on. Isn't it also equally important to have the right technology, the right platforms, the right mindset in place uh, for success and also agility to adapt to changing uh, dynamics of, of a global market that are changing faster than uh, ever before? 
Um, I, well, cert certainly, our, uh, I think our ability to re react is probably relatively good, that we tend to be quite good at uh, some of those things. Um, in terms of technology, um, yeah, I think we're, we're very dependent on, on other countries for a lot of the technology that we use and we need, like robots, for example, that I don't, as far as I know, there isn't a single com company in the UK that's making robots, apart from very specialist things for medical procedures and that kind of thing. Otherwise, you're really dependent on on, on the Germans and the Japanese as the main sources of, of, of technology like that. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a, a, a major problem. The, the, the problem is more that we haven't necessarily utilized those things as much as we should have done. Um, and we probably don't have enough engineers who really know how to um, install and apply a robot, which isn't always easy. Um, that, that Nick was talking before about um, low productivity in food industry. And I, and as I say that's a different thing. But um, yeah, I've been appalled at going around food factories at, at, at how they simply don't use modern production engineering at all. Um, but it's available. It, it, it's, it's, it, it, it can be there if you need it, if, if you're willing to exploit it. And, and indeed, if you've got the money to make those investments and the time to do it. Thank you. Uh, six minutes left. Steve. Um, just a just a quick question, Tom. Um, to, to what to what it, to what extent? I don't know if you've done this, but, but to what extent have you maybe tried to um, not not just act as an individual, but pull pull to pull together senior like minds from industry to uh, effectively um, uh, try and influence the government. In other words, it's it's what's not clear to me from a, a manufacturing point of view that we have. Um, senior people within manufacturing trying to influence the government. So have you, have you tried to sort of ga gather, gather together a group of like minds to 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 put your point over? Um, I, it, 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 it's an interesting question. It, it would be a daunting task. I don't know quite how I'd go about it. Um, and and the, one of the problems is the, 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 the biggest hitters, the most senior people, are running quoted companies. And for the most part, when you're running a quoted company, you just don't say some of the things that I say in my book. Um, the city wouldn't tolerate it if you did. So I think it, it, it would be a great idea to try to do that. But I, I think it needs to be done through one of the industry groups like Make UK or something like that. But I don't see them really leveraging that. Most of what they seem to do seems to be at a much lower level than what you're you're talking about. What What about the CBI? Are they just two two big and quoted companies? I, I, I don't I, I don't think the CBI is particularly interested in manufacturing. One one of my ex colleagues um, got on one of the um, fairly senior CBI committees, and they'd be debating some aspect of policy, and he'd say, "Well, that would be terribly difficult for manufacturing," and the other people at the table would look at him and say, "So what?" Um, and they were people from uh, retailing and um, advertising, sort of banking, what have you. Um, and I, 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 I don't have a great deal of respect for the CBI, and I'm not too sure that they handled the whole Brexit debate very well. And the new guy that they've now got running it, I certainly haven't taken a, a, a shine to myself. Um, now I, th I think that I think we need to be doing it through more specialist areas, um, and I think within manufacturing, Make UK is probably the leading lobby group at the moment. But but as you know, as Nick has said, there's a whole range of others, and it, it is it's not a very coordinated approach right now. Okay, last few minutes, Ewan, you've got your hand up. Yeah, just picking up actually on what's just been talked about, because a couple of weeks ago we had one of our sort of manufacturing colleagues on, Andrea Wilson, and she was talking and I think has been sort of active on LinkedIn about having a minister for manufacturing. Um, and I just wondered, given what you've just said, whether you thought that that sort of role and position uh, would be a good starting point. And, and, and if so, um, I guess where, where you'd look to try and find somebody like that. Um. We, we, we've already got a minister for, for business, um, and they should be interested in manufacturing, amongst other things. I think the problem is if you get a minister for manufacturing, then you should have a minister for retailing, a minister for banking, a minister for advertising, um, a minister for furniture and interior design. Um, I don't know where you start. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, if 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 if, a, if the government wanted to take a real interest and appoint somebody like that, if they could appoint somebody good, um, then perhaps that would be helpful. But I I I I I don't really see how it fits into the present sort of structure, and I and I don't think you know if you look at at, at um, a place like uh, Germany, I don't think they have a, a minister for manufacturing. It's just something that's very high on all the the, the agendas of of um, the German politicians. Um, the, the, the suggestion I made in the book is that, that it would be jolly useful to appoint more experienced industrialists to the House of Lords. At the moment, I think we've got more Church of England bishops in the House of Lords than we have experienced industrialists. And in fact, as far as I know, the, the only one um, is Anthony Bamford. And like many in the House of Lords, he doesn't actually speak uh, much. I think he hardly ever goes there. Um, but if we had more people in, in that sort of category, that, that actually vetting stuff coming through from the Commons, um, that, that would be a potential way to go, which might be more effective. But I don't see any sign of that happening. Well, I think you're making the perfect case for your own elevation to the House of Lords, Tom. <laughs> I, I think we should, no, that, should... That was not a party political broadcast. <laughs> I think this should very much form part of our campaign for the uh, uh, the BHAG, which we have uh, the big, hairy, audacious goal in our mission, um, which uh, is all going to be tied up with uh, the development of UK MFG Unite, of which, as I promise everybody, uh, more in a few days time but all is going extremely well tom i cannot thank you enough that was absolutely wonderful what a great hour i've really enjoyed myself thank you very much for taking the time out thank you for writing the book um and uh, julian has been uh, watching this closely who knows maybe there's uh, uh julian runs bite-sized books so maybe there is uh, a second book in the offing tom i can yeah i think that there's uh, definitely something to be done there anyway um Good night, everybody. Thank you very much indeed for being with us. And thank you, as always, for your contributions. I hope you're all having a great summer. Tom, thank you again. Really appreciate it. And uh, all the very best to you. And uh, of which I will say sayonara. Good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.